Let's pray together. Our Father, you are indeed holy and a glorious mystery to us to be one God and three persons. And Lord, if we could comprehend you fully, you would not be worthy of our worship. And so we delight in your majesty, your holiness, and your, your greatness over us. And Father, we come now to your word, knowing that you have the words of eternal life. Your words, O oh Lord, are life to us. And so we pray that they would revive us, that they would convict us, strengthen us, edify us. Father, by your spirit, would you please light up your word for our good this morning. We are so prone to wander. We are so prone to forget you and who we are in you. So draw us back and teach us, Lord, and be made great among us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you to participate in a bit of a thought experiment with me for a minute. I'd like you to imagine that you are a student, whether that's in college or grad school or trade school. I know that that's real life for some of you, I'm aware. But imagine that you're going to school knowing exactly what you want to do after you graduate. And so maybe that's real life for fewer of you. But imagine that on your first day of classes, you get a call from your dream job. And they tell you, the day you graduate, we are going to hire you. There's no doubt about it. We're going to hire you the day you graduate, but you need to be, need to be ready for when that day comes. Well, what a relief that would be, right, to have a promised job upon graduation and the kind of job that you want. So now you know precisely what you've got to prepare for. You know what classes you should take and, and so on. So how would this affect the way you go through those years of school? How would you prepare yourself for your first day on the job? Well, you probably wouldn't, or at least shouldn't, slack your way through school. You probably wouldn't uh, take all the easy classes and just party every weekend. Or at least you shouldn't do that. You might think that's an appropriate response because hey, the job is guaranteed, right? But that doesn't make you ready for the job. To prepare for the promised job would be to study. It would be to work hard. It would be to take the hard classes, to put off distractions, and then to put yourself around people who are going to help you and challenge you on the way. In other words, the right response to such a promise would be to live in a way that's worthy of the promise. It would be to live in a way that's worthy of the promise. So that when you show up on day one of the job, you're ready. And you've been making yourself ready since the promise was made. This is what the Apostle Peter wants for us. He's not talking about school or work. He's talking about eternal life. He wants us, as those who have received the promise to so look forward 
to eternal life, that we live in a way that's worthy of the promise. Not because living that way earns us anything, earns us the promise, but because we want to live in a way that's worthy of what's been given. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, we'll start in verse 13 and go to verse 21. Before we get into the passage, it's worth taking a minute to figure out where Peter is coming from. He starts verse 13 in our passage with this word, therefore. And so we've got to figure out what he's building off of. And what he's done is he spent the first 12 verses celebrating the inheritance that we have as God's people. He tells us that, that waiting for us in heaven is this eternal joy and riches that are imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. This inheritance and salvation is ours now in Christ, and it will be ours fully when we see him. And so since that's the case, he says what he says in our passage. On a larger scale, one thing you notice as you read 1 Peter is the way that he writes with a forward lean. He is always looking toward the horizon of eternity, and he's telling us to keep our eyes there. And he says, as we do that, as we look toward eternity, we will then know how to fill our roles as citizens and spouses. We'll know how to function as a church, how to suffer as Christians. All of those things will fall into place as we do what Peter tells us to do, to live with a, a forward lean, a tilt toward eternity. And that's really the thrust of our passage this morning, to set your hope in the day, the coming day of Christ, to set your hope in heaven. That's the main point of this passage. And then he tells us two ways that should look, and it's to be holy and fear God. So set your hope on future grace. That's the, the overarching point here with two ways to do that, by pursuing holiness and by fearing God. So let's get into our passage. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we've already figured out why he says, therefore. And again, the main command in this passage is in this verse to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. But how does that command relate to these other other instructions in verse 13, to prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Well, think about this. How do, we, how do we actually go about setting our hope on, on anything? It involves the mind, right? It requires our mind's activity. So think of Paul's instructions in Colossians 3 to set your mind not on earthly things but on heavenly things, not on things below but on things above. This is what Peter is saying. We do this, this setting of our hope with our minds. And if we are going to do this kind of hoping the right way, our minds had better be ready for action and they better be sober. So that first clause, preparing your minds for action, is more literally, uh, gird up the loins of your mind. Now our minds do not have loins, but the image still helps us. If you were... If you're going to be ready for action and you were wearing a robe of some sort, as you might in the ancient world, uh, you would need to tuck that robe in as you get ready to run or work or whatever it might be. 
And it brings to mind the scene in Exodus on the night of Passover when the Israelites are preparing to leave Egypt. The Lord tells the Israelites to eat that last meal quickly so they're ready to exit. He tells them to eat with your, eat with your belt on, put your sandals on your feet, keep your staff in your hand so that you can get out of there quickly. And the King James actually puts that passage in Exodus 12 as the Lord saying, eat that meal with your loins girded. Be ready to go. I think a, a contemporary equivalent to this would be to say, roll up the sleeves of your mind. Get ready for what's coming. And then the second clause is related to it. It literally says, be sober. But we're talking about the mind here, and so sober-mindedness sober mindedness is a good way to take it. Now, the, the opposite of sobriety, obviously, is drunkenness. And you know, maybe Peter has that in mind, but I think, I think more immediately, he's warning against not just drinking, but general living in a kind of stupor and numbness. This kind of living, the kind that isn't sober-minded, is the kind that, in the words of one writer, becomes dull to the reality of God. The kind of living that is anesthetized by the attractions of this world. When people are lulled into such drowsiness, they lose sight of Christ and concentrate only on fulfilling their earthly desires. The way to prevent that kind of spiritual dullness and drowsiness is to be sober-minded and ready for action. So if we can keep our minds in that kind of shape, we are in position to set our hope where it needs to be. So just as a, a quick application, if our minds are a vital instrument in how we set our hope on heaven, then we need to be careful about what we give our minds to. One way that, that people are often not intentional enough is with the kind of entertainment that they consume. How easy it is to, to take in a steady diet of shows, movies, podcasts, whatever it might be, that slowly make us callous to sinful things and that, that maybe celebrate evil and that make us feel a little more friendly and at home with the world. Now, th there's, a, of course, a place for rest and for leisure. I agree with Paul that, that everything created by God is good and shouldn't be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. But if you're like me, you don't need help growing numb to the things of God. We need help setting our hope heavenward. That takes, that takes work, and it requires that we think on things that are true and honorable and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent. Our minds are things to be stewarded. Back to our verse. As we prepare our minds for action and think with sobriety, then comes the command, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When, when is this event that Peter's describing? What's the coming of Christ? When he will be revealed at the end of all things. If you look up at verse 7, uh, before our passage, you'll see Peter uses this exact same phrase. He says that our, our faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
And what is this grace that will be brought to us on the day of Christ? Well, we could say a number of things in response to that, but I think in Peter's mind, he's thinking of when we will enter into our inheritance, when we put off sin forever, when we enter into the joy of our master, put on immortality, and see Christ and dwell with him for age after age after age. That is the grace that will be ours, the inheritance that awaits us. And Peter, by the inspiration of the Spirit, tells us to set your hope on that day. And he doesn't say set your hope there partially or set your hope there mostly. He says set your hope there fully, perfectly. And what does it look like to do that, to set your hope fully on our coming inheritance? Well, that's the question that's answered in the rest of the passage. And there are two answers. The first is by pursuing holiness in verses 14 through 16. So let's look at those. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your, of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter begins here by giving us a negative and a positive. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Rather, be holy. And again, notice he's using this mind language, ignorance. When you were ignorant of Christ and didn't know the love of God, you lived like it. You lived like you didn't know him. Maybe some of you, like me, uh, can remember what it was like to live in ignorance of the glory of Christ and the gospel. And so Peter says, don't live like that anymore. Since that, that's not true of you any longer, don't live like it is. At that time, your desires were probably not defined by love for Christ and by seeking his kingdom first. They were probably centered on yourself, which leads into all kinds of, of sinful passions. But Peter says, if you're a child of God, it only makes sense that you live like a child of God. And I love how Peter gives this instruction. He says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but he gives it, having affirmed the status and identity of his readers as obedient children. He wants them to be holy, not so that they can become children of God, but because they are children of God. As beloved, obedient sons and daughters, live in line with your identity. Maybe you had a parent, or maybe you are the kind of parent who says things like, as long as you're a member of this family, as long as you live under this roof, you're going to live a certain way. Well, that's just the truth in God's family. If you are a child in his house, there is a way to live in accord with who you are and to whom you belong. But the glorious thing about it is that the identity of being a child of God is totally secure. You cannot lose that point. It's a guarantee, and since it is, we can freely seek to live in line with the standards of this family. As obedient children, be holy. Verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter 
he's quoting from Leviticus here. It's not exactly clear where he's quoting from because the Lord says something like that in about four different places in Leviticus. But I do want to consider the passage that Danny read earlier from Leviticus 20 because it sheds, it sheds light on what it means to be holy. I just want to share a few of those phrases again that Danny read. In that passage, the Lord says to his people, you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. So they're about to enter the land of Canaan where the Lord will drive out the nations that currently live there. And the conduct of those nations is evil. It's, it's so bad, it's so wicked, the Lord says he detests them. So God says to his people, don't live like them. Be holy. And he says in the next verse of, Levit- of Leviticus 20, I am the Lord who has separated you from the peoples. Again, Israel's way of life was to be distinct from their neighbors. He has called them not just to be any other nation. He's called them to be a holy nation. And then that passage ends, Leviticus 20, verse 26, with the Lord saying, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Same message. Be holy. How? By being devoted to the Lord and separated distinct from the nations. And Peter is telling us the exact same thing. He's not telling us to separate physically from the unbelieving world. He's not in the process of driving out the nations around us. And I don't think he's telling us, as he did in Leviticus, don't eat the food that the nations are eating. That's not the kind of way he wants us to be distinct. But the principle stands that the people of God are called to live in a way that is distinct from those around us. And look at how how all-encompassing the claim is that Peter makes. You also be holy in all your conduct. Look, we are all sinners in this room, and that's not going to change until the revelation of Jesus. But even so, our devotion to Jesus Christ, our hope in him, should result by the power of the Spirit in holy living, in all our conduct. And so it's good to regularly take a look at your life and, and ask, is this area of life happening in the, under the lordship of Christ? Do I use my money in a way that shows I'm hoping for heaven? What about my use of time? Does the way I speak have the aroma of Christ, or is it filled with the kind of ingratitude and gossip and slander that marks the unbelieving world. So maybe you've got a a close friend or a spouse and you can ask them, are there areas of my life where I could be confused with an unbeliever? And don't stop with external things. Ask internal questions like, does my response to inconvenience or interruption or offense or suffering Does it show that I'm living for the here and now? Is it marked by by anger and impatience and irritability, which really conveys that deep down I'm thinking at that moment, this is the only life I've got, and my time is mine? Or does my response to those kind of things, inconvenience, interruption, show that I believe there's an eternity waiting, and I'm hoping there? 
Our response to difficulty, I think, can be a good way to reveal what we care about most deeply. Like I said, we are not perfect. We're not going to be. But as children of God, the God who called us out of darkness, we are to walk in the light, to be holy as he is holy. So to keep us connected to the main point here, uh, seeking to be holy as God is holy keeps us ready for the day of Christ. And if we start to become indistinct from the unbelieving world, it's going to be difficult for us to keep our hope set fully on the day of Christ. And the next way that we do this, we put our hope in heaven. First it was to be holy. The second is to, as verse 17 says, live in the fear of God. Verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So in in that last section we just finished, he said, as obedient children, be holy. And here he appeals to our relationship to God as our father. If you call on him as father. And then he describes the father for us. And you know, the Bible just does not let us get away with having simplistic notions of who God is. So that knowing God as father is simultaneously comforting and sobering. It's comforting because it means that the God of the universe, the Lord of all things, is our Father. And if he is for us, who can, who can be against us? But it's sobering because it means that our Father, as Peter puts it, judges impartially according to each one's deeds. He is tender with us as our Father, And he is just. He will judge our deeds on the last day. We will stand before him and give account. So Peter says, if you call on him as father, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So this call to conduct yourselves with fear is the main command of this this section of our passage. It was the call to be holy in the previous section, and here it's the call to fear. Now, you'll notice Peter doesn't explicitly say, conduct yourselves in the fear of God, but that's what he's saying. That's what he's talking about. So this idea of fearing God is not part of the Old Testament only. We call on God as our tender, loving Father, and we live in the fear of Him. And these two ideas are not at odds. Children of God are entirely confident of their standing with him, and they live with a reverent fear of him. And to fear God is a serious call. You know, children might uh, misbehave when they are all alone, when they're in a room with no parent around. But what happens when dad walks in? Well, they sit up a little straighter. They probably stop whatever misbehavior they're doing. Well, is that because they're terrified? of their dad, of their father? No, it's because he's their father. And they know that if they play fast and loose with the rules, there will be loving discipline to come. So when the Bible calls us to fear God as our father, it's calling us to live like he's in the room because he always is, everywhere and always. But lest we think that the call to fear God is is a dark 
and the less pleasant side of knowing God, let me just remind you of some of the promises that the Bible gives for those who fear God. And this is just a taste. This would make a really fruitful study to go through the Proverbs and the Psalms and just mark all that's promised to those who would fear God. Let me just give you a sampling. Psalm 25, 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. The friendship for those who fear. What a surprising combination that is. Psalm 31, 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. God has storehouses of goodness that he is just waiting to pour out on those who fear him. He is not stingy with his goodness. And the last one, Psalm 147, verse 11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. So our fear of the Lord is not because he's scowling at us. In fact, he takes pleasure in those who fear him. So living in the fear of God is not to live in abject terror. It's to know that God is present and he is holy. And to, to obey him is to live in an unimaginable blessing. And how long? How long are we supposed to live in the fear of God? Well, he tells us in the rest of verse 17, throughout the time of your exile. Some translations refer to this as the time of your sojourning. I know we're spending a lot of time on verse 17. It's because there's just so much in it. If you call on him as father who judges impartially, live out your sojourn in fear of him. So why does Peter use this notion of exile and sojourning here? Well, he used it at the very beginning of his letter. He addressed his readers as elect exiles. And he uses it because he wants them to view themselves as exiles, as temporary residents in a foreign land. He wants them to look to the heavenly city, to the one without or with foundations. And Paul says in Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven, which is another way of saying we're just exiles here, pilgrims in a weary land. So I would ask, how often do you think of yourself as an exile? Do you see yourself as a sojourner here, or does this life feel pretty good to you? Do you feel pretty at home here in the world? One thing that Peter knows, and he says that makes it crystal clear, um, is that nothing, nothing will help you feel like a sojourner better than a little suffering. Hardship has the unique ability to loosen the grip that this world can have on our hearts. And if we live like exiles, if we look forward to our eternal hope, the writer of Hebrews says in just astonishing terms, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. So we sojourn with him as our unashamed father. And so live in the fear of him throughout the time of your sojournings and get ready for the blessing of his friendship, his goodness, his pleasure. And if that weren't enough, he gives us more reasons to conduct ourselves in fear in verses 18 
and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So what is this, what is this extra motivation he gives us for fearing God? Well, I think you could turn these, these two verses into a question. Something like, do you know how much it cost to ransom you? Do you know how lost you were apart from the love of God? Do you realize that when you were dead in your sins, you were not a child of God, but a child of wrath? Whatever way of life you inherited from those who came before you was futile, and it was going to lead you straight into eternal darkness and hell. There is no pile of silver or gold big enough to bring you back from that. You could get all the world's wealthiest people together in an effort to make a dead heart come to life, and it would do absolutely nothing. But you know what can bring a dead heart back to life? Blood. Precious blood. Not from an animal, not from a sinful person, but from a sinless Savior without blemish or spot. And the Bible says that the life is in the blood, and there is eternal life in this blood. This is the kind of blood that was shed when a crown of thorns was pressed onto his head. This is the kind of blood that spilled when nails went into his hands and into his feet and when a spear went into his side. That blood was spilled to keep us from going down whatever vain path we would have inherited from our forebears or just invented ourselves. And so that's the motivation, to live as exiles in the fear of God. And if you are here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, you've never really thought of yourself as someone who has sins that need to be forgiven, for one, we are so glad you're here. We would love to meet you and visit with you. But I want to ask you, what vision of the promised land is motivating you? Well, maybe you think, I don't have a vision of the promised land. Well, we all have a vision of the promised land in mind. It might be the promised land of financial success or professional acclaim or maybe just the freedom to do whatever you want to do. It could be playing video games all day. I don't know. But one thing that we all learn eventually is that the promised lands that we invent are never as good as we had hoped. They always prove to be, as Peter describes here, futile, vain ways. But there is a way to a true and lasting promised land. And so if you would admit that you have sins that you've committed, you're not as good a person as other people might think you are. None of us are, by the way. And if you would turn to Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, he will wash them away with his precious blood. And he will set you on that way to lead to eternal, secure hope, a hope that is in him and that will not disappoint. Not only will hoping in him not disappoint, it will exceed any expectation you could have conjured up. 
one thing I love about this passage is that Peter is he's giving us these instructions. He's talking to us, telling us what to do. But he can't help just saying a little more about the greatness of, of Jesus. He can't help slip into what's almost doxology here in verse 20 and 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So how great is this spotless lamb that he mentioned earlier? Well, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, meaning he predates the foundation of the world. He is the eternal lamb of God. But he was made manifest not until recently in Peter's day. And he says Christ's arrival, it began the last days of history. That's why he describes this time when Christ came as in the last times. This is now the last stage of history, begun when Christ arrived, and it will close when he comes again. And why did he come when he did and in the way that he did? Well, Peter says, I mean, let this just sink in. Peter says, the reason Christ was made manifest was for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. He came, was made manifest, so that we might believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory at his right hand. And this too is for our good, so that your faith and hope are in God. We would not believe, we would not have hope if Christ had not come in the flesh and been raised from the dead. And there again is that word hope at the end of our passage, just as it was at the beginning. And these last couple verses, I think they could seem out of place in our passage. But I think Peter is upping the ante even further here. He's adding more layers, more reasons for why we ought to live in the fear of God. Jesus, Jesus shed his precious blood, executing an eternal plan. And he did it for the sake of you. So that you too can be raised from the dead and given glory. Tom Schreiner says about this, what a tragedy it would be to throw all these privileges away by ceasing to live in the fear of God. A tragedy indeed. And so our passage comes together to set your hope fully on the day of Christ and do that by living in holiness and in the fear of God. And I want to ask just a couple of questions for us to think about in response to this passage. One immensely obvious question that we must ask is, where does your hope reside? Is it in Christ? Is it located in heaven or is it located somewhere else, like in security or comfort or health or financial stability? I've never lived through an earthquake but I did grow up in Minnesota, which meant I felt my feet slip many, many times. In both those circumstances, you know, you feel either the ground shaking beneath your feet or you feel it disappearing under your feet when you're walking on ice. And once you feel that, that instability, what you do is you instinctively reach for something to grab onto. There is no humility, by the way, 
like the humility of walking across an icy street in front of a bunch of traffic and losing your, your feet and having nothing to grab onto. It feels vulnerable. There's nothing to grab onto. But the question is, what if you're in an earthquake, if you're standing on ice, you're going to try to grab onto something. And so it is in our lives. There are days, there are seasons we live through when it feels like the ground beneath our feet is slipping or it is moving. I mean, we all just lived through a long period of that last year. And those kind of events, I think, help expose where our hope does, in fact, lie. When things become uncertain, where do you instinctively reach? Well, we want it to be the case that we reach out to the reality that our hope is in heaven, that our security is in Christ, and that we are children of God forever. So if you are in Christ, your name is written in the book of life, and it cannot be erased. The second question is, are you ready for your hope to be realized? Have you girded up the loins of your mind and sought sobriety of mind? Or have you grown numb and dull to eternal things and grown friendly with the unbelieving world? Anna and I just finished listening to a a really good, fascinating book called The Only Plane in the Sky. It's an oral history of the events of 9-11. And it's filled with stories that are, that are harrowing and heroic. And it, it goes through the day, bouncing from New York to the Pentagon to Pennsylvania, and it co- covers seemingly everything. And there are a number of stories that have stuck with me. But one came from later in the day, as things sort of calmed down, Um, on 9-11, and the story was being told in the book by a woman who I think she worked at the Pentagon, but she says that later in the day, she started receiving all these phone calls from people who just wanted to help. People just wanted to volunteer and see if there was a way that they could come down there and just do something, whether it would be help searching for people, for survivors. People offered to come and help secure the premise She said that one gentleman called, a man who was about 80 years old, and he called and said, I was a pilot in World War II. I'm old now, but I can still see. I've kept up my ability to fly, and I can still fit into my uniform. And then he says, I want you to tell whoever you need to tell that I'm ready to report for duty. Now, this guy hadn't flown in combat for 55 years, but he stayed ready. And he didn't know what he was staying ready for. He didn't know a day would come when he might try to report for duty again. But he stayed ready anyway. Well, we, Christians, do know that a day will come. There will be a revelation of Jesus Christ, and we will face judgment and enter eternal joy. The question is, Are we ready for it? And are we living like we know it's coming? So the pursuit of holiness and the fear of God are what Peter tells us will keep us ready. So fix your eyes, fix your hope on heaven, and all the more as the day draws near. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do confess that we are often 
quickly numbed, quick to forget that this life is not all there is for us. So we pray, Father, that you would help us to be sober-minded, that you would help us to keep our minds ready for action so that our hope is fully on the day of Christ. And Father, we trust you that you will use whatever it is that you bring into our lives to loosen the grip of this life and this world and to deepen our anticipation for seeing Christ, for dwelling with him. Or what a day it will be to see him, to be with him, to enjoy his presence. And so give us deeper longings for this. Give us a taste for your goodness. And help us to, to look with ever-growing anticipation for that day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.